You're listening, You're to, listening radio. to Radio Free, radio Satan. free Satan. Com. Com. Enjoy the show. I'd like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. I have a good show for you this week. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host, Adam Campbell. It's great to have you. It is February 17th, and I've got a really great show for you this week. That's right, headlining the show, I would say. I sat down a little over a week ago and spoke with author Yuvi Ray about his collection of short stories, We Are Glass. And it is an amazing book, and uh, yeah... I'm going to bring you that interview this week. You're welcome. <laughs> Outside of that, in The Devil's Advocate, I have uh, Megas Gilmore's essay, Masterful Slaves, and it's in the Satanic Scriptures. I'm going to read a little bit of his essay from that source and then kind of give you my little take on it. It's something that I've been saying on this show for a long time, and it's nice to have it echoed in such a... Uh, um, uh, a concise way, as Megas Gilmore put it in the uh, Masterful Slaves. In Infernal Informant, he was so drunk he fell on my face. Okay, out of context, that doesn't sound so bad. <laughs> it's a weird story, I'm going to get into that. And wouldn't a minimum wage hike lower the welfare rolls? We'll talk about that. But before I get into the show, as per usual, today was the very first time ever that I went ice fishing. I went with some... Uh, you know, pretty good friends, homebrewing enthusiasts as well, uh, two gentlemen that are featured in the Wart Nation blog, and I'm not, I'm not a big fisherman. See, I love being in the outdoors. I love hiking, and I love camping, and I love sitting back and enjoying the outdoors, so one would think that that would go hand in hand with fishing. My entire fishing experience growing up was my stepdad taking us to, like, hatcheries, and fishing in a hatchery pond, not telling us that it was a hatchery, and we just thought we were like the greatest fishermen ever, like we always caught fish, we were so good at it, and then when we actually went out on our own, in like a river or a stream, we were like, why aren't we catching any, why does it take so long to catch, I don't understand, I thought I was the greatest fisherman in the world, uh, but no, no, lies, so I wasn't, to be honest, that excited to go ice fishing at first. <laughs> My son was really excited, and so I went, and I first of all, I love the two guys I went with. They're great human beings, and so just the company was good. We ended up drinking a lot <laughs> out on the ice on this lake and um, talking a lot of smack about a lot of different things. Not a lot of fishing going on. <laughs> just saying. Not a whole lot of fishing. Now, uh, one of the gents did catch a nice fish, and it looks real good, but the rest of us had a couple of bites, but nothing nothing stuck, and um, not as exciting as I was hoping it was going to be. I'm not sure if I'd go do it again, but it was an experience, 
my son had a good time up until the end, and it wasn't as cold as I expected either. So, I mean, I know, you know, the season's changing, and so it, I don't know how much longer ice fishing is even going to be an option. But, you know, it was interesting. Just a lot of beer. I mean, that, that was the biggest thing. And it wasn't even good beer. It was like Pabst. A whole lot of Pabst, <laughs> which was weird. And, uh, yeah, I also released two new blogs for Wart Nation, my homebrewing blog. So the first one was uh, the Belgian White in three. So it's me trying to boil down what it means to brew beer in a concise recipe in a short amount of time to not only keep attention span, because I know people don't have damn attention spans nowadays, so keep it short and concise so people will feel like they can watch it, but also short so that they will watch it, and really present it in a, a technical, quick, you know, just point out what you need to do step by step in the brewing process. I don't know if it, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I have some, <laughs> I have some production value issues to be working out because this isn't supposed to be, it's supposed to be personal, you know, I mean, it's not supposed to be like TV production value or cable TV production value. I mean, it's, it's, it's me in my kitchen with my wife just recording myself brewing. So it's, you know, keep that in mind. Uh, but I'm continually trying to evolve the process. Anyway, Belgian White in 3, short video clip about how to make a Belgian White beer. If you're interested, go check it out. And because I enjoy the Cocktail Vultures blog, I put out the interview that I had recorded last year with the Cocktail Vultures, Pagan Adramia and Joe Netherworld. And uh, normally when it comes to 9 Cents interviews, I release them as I recorded them throughout the show's progression. So I'm actually still in the first year of putting out interviews, to be quite honest, um, in the 9 Cents interviews format. Uh, every once in a while, I'll put one out a little bit earlier, but I'm still not going to feature it in the RSS feed, so I made just a, a, a YouTube video of it, which is really just like 9 Cents Interviews logo shifting into the Cocktail Vultures logo visually, but it has the actual interview. Now, it's, it's one of the most popular interviews I've had on the show, and it's one that continually comes up with new people experiencing it. So this is just another way that I could feature it um, without really breaking into the 9 Cents Interviews RSS feed and sort of, you know, cracking that schedule wide open. Uh, but also being able to write a blog about the Cocktail Vultures, about their achievements, and sort of awareness about them, you know, sharing a little liquor love, <laughs> as it were, uh, with my blog. And, you know what, if you like the interview, maybe you'd like it uh, in this format. Certainly, you know, click play and then go do whatever you're going to do around the house while listening to it. It's a really good interview and it's worth the time. So that's also on the blog. And again, you can find the blog at wartnation.com. Okay, so how about we just dive right into... Uh, eh. Well, first of all, I'm kind of tired. <laughs> I'm not going to give you that crabby, moody shit that I gave you before a couple weeks ago. But I am tired, so I'm going to try my best to keep it upbeat. <laughs> just so you know, I've got a little mall back here keeping me company. Keeping my cheeks so rosy. So, I hope that's going to kick me through. But I really do like this Devil's Advocate essay. 
So let's jump right into that, shall we? You are your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And you are the devil's advocate. I'm a Satanist. I'm an active member in the Church of Satan, but I do not speak for the Church of Satan. That is all. Masterful Slaves Satanists acknowledge the fact that there are those who naturally are leaders and those who are followers. There are masters and there are slaves, and quite a few shades in between. Satanism can be a great launching pad for those who are realists to see where they stand in their level of personal achievement and to rationally decide how to advance themselves in whatever manner they choose. They also have the option to not advance themselves, but to enjoy whatever level they have attained. That's the first paragraph of the essay Masterful Slaves by Magus Peter H. Gilmore featured in the Satanic Scriptures. And I have to say, if you are a Satanist and you do not own the Satanic Scriptures, you are missing an amazing collection of thoughts that are unmatched in the Satanic world. You have to, uh, I don't even know if it's even available at a library, but somehow get your hands on a copy. Um... Drop the dime on it. It's something that you will reference your entire life. And like the Satanic Bible, you reread it and find new gems of thought. And it's it's just one of those tomes that is, to a Satanist, quite invaluable. Alright, so, to the essay. Yeah, you guys have heard me bitching about this constantly. I, I, I truly believe that there are people born with capacities. Whether they can be, in this particular case... Uh, masters or slaves. But, I mean, just looking at the LeVay personality synthesizer, you know, individuals are, are naturally falling into line, uh, with, with certain, certain capacities. And what Satanists do, um, certainly what a self-actualized human being does, is recognize and be honest about who and what you are. Now, one thing that you're gonna find in a lot of sort of first phase Satanist, and and certainly just the wide world out there that has nothing to do with Satanism, are people who have delusions of grandeur. They want to be the next great big evil or super powerful thing without any regard for who they actually are as individuals. Now, this is often, in my experience, uh, a symptom of unrealistic goals being set upon themselves, um, unrealistic views of the world around them, um, or just flat out lying to oneself. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, Masterful Slaves, the essay, really is speaking to those who understand and recognize that there are capacities in human beings and that some people are born to be slaves and some people are born to be masters and and it's the recognition of that that can you know give you that one up 
on lesser magic and on greater magic and in just living your life it is essential to have a, a honest relationship with yourself and you know for for me you would think that that would be a really easy thing to do <laughs> not so easy and especially when you start diving into things like satanism uh misunderstandings uh, uh lies about what it really is and then you have these youngsters coming into it or or oldsters even <laughs> is that even a word where they come into it thinking you know this is a wild west of of religious thought i can just do whatever i want because satanism is whatever i define it to be it's anti christianity and so i get to do whatever i want and be and or they'll come into the organization of the church of satan and think that if I just flex my online muscles, then somehow, or or I, I write a, a witty diatribe, then uh, how could headquarters not recognize me for being the masterful Satanist that I am and elevate me immediately to, you know, to whatever they, they think they're worth? And it just, it, it doesn't really happen like that because... The world doesn't really work that way, one. And you're lying to yourself, too. If you are of worth, uh, and, and keeping in mind in, in that example I just gave, because the Church of Satan is a mutual admiration society, if you are of worth, and you are doing content, or I'm sorry, um, and you are producing content in the real world that is worthwhile to other Satanists, that's when you'll begin to be recognized in that aspect. But more importantly, certainly more importantly, success in your life is not defined by those viewing it from the outside, but by you living it on the inside. You realize that if you're happy managing uh, a McDonald's, for example, and you don't want to advance anymore because the added responsibility may or may not be worth it, you know, the stress or, or whatever decision you've made in your life, um, for example, I have a buddy who works in uh, one of the top chains of auto parts stores who worked his way up to store manager, realized that immediately he didn't like the responsibilities and took a slight paycheck a hit by being demoted, but he he can do every job in the store and so they respect him for his capacity. He just doesn't want that added responsibility and the added stress. And so he's happy being where he is. And he's done that job for many years uh, since that decision was made. I respect that man uh, hundreds of times more than uh, the man who is continually struggling to reach that upper tier in management, all the while not realizing that just because you're capable of performing uh, tasks, it doesn't equate to leading. Certainly not leading other human beings. A, a good... <laughs> this is something that I picked up in the military. Um, good leaders uh, are taught. Great leaders are born. And that means... And, and often you're going to find those who are natural leaders don't want to be the, the leader. They don't want to be in that situation because it, it means that they cannot, and this is certainly, okay, this is a little grandiose on my own history here, but I, I, was, I was always in control of whatever I was doing in the military um, at my macro level. You know, I mean, I was a, always my a shop sergeant, so I was always controlling my own communication shop. And I had soldiers coming through, but I realized quickly that I don't, 
I'm not a great leader for other soldiers because I don't care that much about them. Now, I, I went through the motions that I had to while I was serving, but one of the reasons why I didn't re-up um, after my contract ended was that I I care more about my own success and not as much about my soldier's success. And because being a soldier is a leader as a soldier is very much a mentoring process, you need to really develop, you know, those essential skills of leadership in other people. And I just didn't care. It, it wasn't something that was important to me. I wanted to focus on me for my family, not for these these other human beings. So I realized that I was not a good fit and I should just move on quickly. Um, but that's, you know, that's what I'm getting at, is that having an honest conversation about yourself, maybe you're just never going to be a leader. Maybe you weren't born to be a leader. Does that mean that you're less of a Satanist? Absolutely not. And I hope that was your answer. Satanism is about a realistic view of the world that we live in. It has nothing to do... Satanism is not filled with chiefs all running the world as they want to. They run their world the way they want to. And that's a gigantic distinction that is, is it's incredibly important to understand. I hope you understand it, and you should absolutely check out this article, Masterful Slaves. I'm butchering <laughs> the essence of what Megas Gilmore is speaking to, but you can get it yourself by opening a damn book. I actually kind of felt like LeVar Burton from Reading Rainbow there. But don't take my word for it. <laughs> shut, shut. <laughs> um, I actually love that show growing up, too. Oh, weird. Uh, you know what? Funny, completely non-connected story. I probably shouldn't mention it in this, but I'm going to do it. Anyway. Um, one of the soldiers at, in my in my unit was actually uh, just a funny coincidence of speech here. She was an extra in one of the Reading Rainbow episodes, <laughs> and that was like her great achievement. Oh, I was an actress. Oh, really? What were you in? I was in an episode of Reading Rainbow as a kid. <laughs> like that was her. Her top resume experience as an actress. How awesome is that? Yeah, well, I was on the news, so we were pretty much even. <laughs> you know? So funny. Uh, okay, yeah, realize your own limitations. Be honest with yourself. There's nothing wrong with aspiring to greatness as long as you recognize that there's actual greatness within you. And, and objectively, each of us is capable of seeing the truth. And realize that when we lie to ourselves, we <laughs> we look like douchebags to the rest of the world. Because we're trying to be something we're not. We're forcing something that is not natural. And that is not satanic at all. Be honest with yourselves, people. <laughs> if you're a slave, own it. Be a slave. Be a great one. And if you're a master, my man, own it. Own it. You know? That's it. Psst. Hey. Hey. Hey, come here. Psst. What? Huh? Me? Do I know you? Hey, you're religious, man, aren't you? No more than anyone else. Listen, listen, I got a secret. It's, it's been eating me up, and I gotta share it with someone. Get the fuck out of here, kid. I don't know you. No, listen, man. It's about you. It's about your life. You're about to have what, what alcoholics refer to as your moment of clarity. What are you talking about? Are you okay, son? Sins are indisposable to every society organized on an ecclesiastical basis. They are only reliable weapons of power. The priest lives upon sins. It's, it's necessary to him. 
that there be sinning. Who the fuck are you, kid? I'm your infernal informant. This is DailyMail.uk. Uh, he was so drunk he fell on my face. Mom scared to death when company boss slapped her crying toddler and called him nigger baby on a plane. Speaks for the first time. Joe Ricky Hudley, 60, accused of racially abusing, then striking the 19-month-old infant on a flight to Atlanta. The mother, 33-year-old Jessica Bennett, believes Hundley was intoxicated. And this is uh, published by the Associated Press on the 17th of February. The mother of a toddler who was slapped during a flight has broken her silence, saying she was scared to the death to the death, as a drunk fellow passenger slapped her son after spouting off a racial slur. Jessica Bennett, 33, was aboard the Delta flight of a Minnesota to Atlanta with her adopted son, Jonah, on February 8th, when the boy began crying because he was feeling the pressure in his ears. She said she was shocked to hear the man seated next to her, Joe Ricky Hundley, demand that she shut the nigger baby up. <laughs> First of all, this is a 33-year-old woman. And she was scared to react. She told ABC News, I said, what did you just say? And he was so drunk that he fell onto my face and his mouth moved over to my ear. And he said it directly into my ear. But she couldn't have imagined what happened next. As Hunley allegedly slapped Jonah. When I looked at Jonah's face, his eye was swollen and it was bleeding. I was just scared to death. Mrs. Bennett of Minneapolis, Minnesota, says Jonah was traumatized by the incident and has become apprehensive to strangers since. Hunley's lawyer, Marcia Shine, told ABC News that no one should rush to judgment in her client's case and he will uh, be pleading not guilty. If that is true, you slapped a baby, swelling its eye up and, and making it bleed, there's no jury in the world is going to let you off that but the task of providing his innocence or proving his innocence may be difficult as bennett family attorney john thompson told the network that there were numerous witnesses who saw hunley strike jonah including a federal air marshal according to the smoking gun hunley had been charged with simple assault after the incident hunley was charged with simple assault in the federal court in atlanta last week if convicted he faces a maximum of one year in prison the 60 year old who is the president of an aircraft parts manufacturer based in Idaho, denies slapping the child or using racial language. He claimed that he didn't ask, uh, I'm sorry, that he did ask the mother to quiet the child. <laughs> Hunley was uh, suspended from his job as president of Unitech Composites and Structures, the Atlanta Journal-Constituted reported. Uh, here's the thing, though. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if you, if you have to be a parent to understand this, but... I would like to think that a grown man would understand this. A crying baby is not like a Walkman, where you just... Does anyone know what Walkmans are? I just dated myself. <laughs> it's not like an iPod. I think that will help. <laughs> where you just hit pause and play. You can't just shut a baby up by saying, Oh, I'm sorry, the drunk asshole next to me doesn't want you to cry, baby doll. Please be quiet. No, I don't think so. Babies are reactionary. They don't have any higher thought processes. They literally react to stimulus. So if there's pressure, like a lot of us have, when you <laughs> go up in altitude on your ears, 
you know, we know to pop our ears by chewing or, or just, you know, pushing air out of our ears, you know, like, I don't know, uh, opening your mouth and doing that. But children don't have a clue. They don't know how to do that. So you have to understand that children are going to cry on planes. And if they are crying, you freaking out on a child does not stop them from crying. This is like parenting 101. If you, if you, <laughs> if you're yelling at your child, don't ever, ever, ever expect the child to stop freaking out and yelling. And the more you yell, the more the child's gonna cry and freak out. One, you're being a horrible parent. And two, completely irrational and unrealistic. Children are reactionary. You have to act like that. And you have to have some min minute sense of, uh, I don't know, maybe even compassion with babies. You have to understand that slapping a baby in the face is going to make him cry more. So it proves that you're not only an idiot, but it means you're probably going to be doing jail time for it. And here's the other thing. At no point in this article so far has this mom put the baby in the lap of the person next to them and punched the shit out of this drunk asshole. When was that going to happen? And an air marshal? When does he stand up and say, Shut the fuck up, you drunk asshole. You don't hit a fucking baby and punch the guy in the face. At no point has anyone struck the grown old man who has struck a child, a 19-month-old child, after calling it a nigger baby. What the fuck is wrong with our... You don't have to be involved in everything around you, alright? If someone's smoking and you're asthmatic, take a couple steps away. You don't have to wave big signs saying smoking is hurting my asthma. But if someone strikes a baby, that is just human 101 get involved. There is... There will never be a time where you are reprimanded for stopping that activity. It's only good, people. It is only good to get involved in that case. I, I'm, I'm just shocked. And then the mother said she was scared. She was terrified. Where does your motherly instincts? When do they kick in? Where are they? I gotta tell you, I did not grow up with the uh, most outwardly dominating mother. But I guarantee goddamn tea, if anyone struck us, even as young kids, not just babies, but young kids, she would have lost her shit on those people. That's expected. And it just proves that, you know, you are that mother that you're supposed to be. So keep this in mind, people. If you cannot see yourself protecting the child that is in dire need of protection in this world. Don't be a parent. I mean, it's pretty cut and dry. If you cannot step up to that task, do not be a parent. So, this guy was completely out of line. Absolutely. And I hope he goes to jail for whatever, you know, in this case, it could be up to a year, they're saying. Fine. Have him go to prison for a year. He'll lose his job. He will probably never recover. Uh, economically and socially from that moment. And maybe he needs that. I, I think he needs more personally, but as society says, maybe he needs that and that'll be it for him. But this mother should be asking herself if she's really cut out to this. And, 
you know, you may see it as kind of harsh going after the mother in this case, but where's the protection of your child? This is like so basic as a parent. I would never. And I understand that argument. Well, you weren't in the situation. How would you know? Shut up. You know as a parent what you, what your limits are. If you, I would argue, if you're capable of listening to a baby scream in your face, then you are absolutely capable of unleashing, harnessing all of that rage, sadness, and aggression that you're feeling, a complete lack of control that you're feeling, and harnessing it to beat the shit out of this old racist white man. Why? Why wouldn't you do that? You may not want to be, you, you may actually be doing that child harm by opting in, because this is an adopted child, by opting in to be its uh, caregiver. Because you're not doing the caregiving. Okay, um, Hunley said, sorry, I totally went off and around there. Uh, Hunley said he was traveling to Atlanta to visit a hospitalized relative, describing his emotional state as distraught, and that he had one alcoholic drink on the aircraft. Okay, no one, unless it's, unless it's one of our grandparents goes around to the parent's ear calling their baby a nigger baby and then they need to shut up with one drink in them. It is not something. <laughs> you have to be off your ass. So yeah, maybe on the plane he had one drink, but before he got on the plane, I guarantee there was a more drinking going on. <laughs> he told the smoking gun that she believed, I'm sorry, uh, Bennett told the smoking gun she believed Hunley was intoxicated. The mother said that he reeked of alcohol and was stumbling around wasted. And he consumed several double vodkas during the flight. Bennett said Hunley told her that Jonah was too big to be a lap baby. Agent Cheney, okay, but this is, that's fair, I think. I mean, if you, if you've ever flown, you know, you've probably sat next to that person who overflowed in their seat you know they're just too large for the seat and it, it makes it uncomfortable for you you've probably flown next to the person who maybe even has a dog with them which is something that's going on now uh, i can't understand it but they bring their pets on the plane which is a huge issue and then you know babies that are just physically too large they may be emotionally younger they may be um straight up age younger but their bodies are bigger and it becomes uncomfortable for everyone. It doesn't excuse his behavior, but it is one of those things that, as a parent, you should be keeping that in mind. I, I get if flying is expensive, but you need to understand why it's not more expensive. And that's because you're sharing it with everyone else. And, you know, a little, we're living in a society here, people. You have to have a mediocre level of, uh, uh, understanding that you know what, maybe you're putting the rest of the world out by your shitty behavior. So maybe you shouldn't be bringing a big-ass baby as a lap baby. Maybe, you know, you shouldn't have your dog. Or, or maybe if you're that big, get two seats. So that one, you're comfortable, and two, everyone else is too. Uh, according to Mr. Wooten Cheney wrote, he saw Joe Ricky Hundley strike the child. Hundley pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor assault in Virginia court in 07 and was arrested following a quarrel with his girlfriend. He was first charged with simple assault carrying a concealed weapon in public intoxication. Hundley told the smoking gun that the weapon he had alleged he was allegedly carrying was a corkscrew. Oh, evey. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the article, people. A little bit absurd, but... You know, be, we're saying this. We can't just look at one side and say, oh, you struck a baby. How horrible. She didn't do anything back. Look at the other side here. She, 
this is going to be care you know following suit throughout her whole if she can't handle one drunk old man what happens when it's a bully what happens when it's a teacher you know i mean there's there's going to be hundreds of situations where she's going to have to protect that child if she's incapable of of taking on someone in the weakest of states an inebriated old man what what does that say about her as a parent you got to keep that in mind too all right now second article here wouldn't a minimum wage hike lower the welfare rolls and this is pbs.org and uh let me see when it was published here um Okay, I actually don't see a date. Sorry about that, people. Paul Solomon answers the Next Avenue readers' questions about whether a minimum wage hike would induce people to leave welfare, induce, and whether such a hike would increase the government's tax revenue. Big Swed, Twin Lake, Michigan. An old friend, then on welfare, remarked that if they made it any harder, why, she might have to find a job. I heard her friends remark that it simply did not pay to work because wages did not equal welfare benefits. I wondered how the proposed minimum wage hike would impact welfare recipients. Paul Solomon, an interesting angle I haven't thought of, Big Sweat, that if wages are hiked, they might discourage those on the dole. Well, assuming for a moment the welfare recipients have a choice, as your friend claims, the thought deserves examination. Ever since President Clinton's welfare-to-work reform, though, welfare benefits have been no slam dunk. So, I do wonder how long ago your old friend made the statement you cite. Instead, the main safety net provider these days is Social Security, through its Supplemental Security Income and Disability Insurance Programs. The former SSI is for the indigent um, uh, disabled who don't qualify for Social Security, the latter uh, for the disabled who have worked enough hours to qualify for SS. Between these two groups, some 14 million Americans under the age of 65, including dependents, receive either one or the other. By comparison, only 4.3 million or so are on welfare. And get this, Social Security disability benefits have become so popular that since June of 2009, when this Great Recession was supposed to have officially ended and then economic growth resumed, 4.7 million of us have enrolled in SSDI or SSI programs. By contrast, a mere 2.3 million jobs have been added over the same period. It should be pointed out that actually getting SSI or SSDI benefits is not easy either. Barely a third of disability claimants are accepted into the program when they initially apply. Many then hire lawyers to appeal their denials. The success rate for reconsideration varies drastically by state, but the national average was about 13% as of a few days ago. I'm sorry, years ago. In addition to the difficulties of getting benefits, there's not especially generous. For those who do manage to get disability or supplemental security income, the average yearly benefit as of February 2013 is $13,900. Okay, now we get the nub of Big Sweat's question. How does the disability dole compare to a full-time minimum wage income? As it happens, if you work full-time, it's pretty close. The federal minimum wage is seven and a quarter. Multiply seven and a quarter by hour, per hour for 40 hours a week, and then by 52 weeks a year, and you get $15,080. If the minimum wage were boosted to $9 an hour, however, as the president has proposed, that would bring the maximum yearly minimum wage earnings, according to my calculator, to $18,720. 
It should be pointed out, however, that only 20% of minimum wage earners work 40 hours or more a week, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Fully 58% work 30 hours or fewer. The question would pose then, how many fewer Americans are likely to apply for SSDI, SSI, or welfare if the minimum wage rises? It's got to be some number, presumably, and every one of them represents less money that Americans has to borrow at a current average interest rate of about 2%, which will rise and if, when, if and when interest rates do. But this, <laughs> and uh, it's the main problem with your question as I see it. Any such calculation assumes that SSI and SSDI recipients could get a job if they wanted to. I am neither naive nor knee-jerk. I can well believe that many who apply for disability payments and welfare for that matter are technically capable of working a minimum wage job, and some may even do off-the-book works on the side. The question is, how many of them are likely to get a legitimate on-the-books job in this economy? It is an economy at which, as our latest U7 statistics show, nearly 27 million Americans say they want full-time work and cannot find it. Bottom line, I can't imagine, all things considered, that the number of potential workers would be high enough to make much of a difference to our federal budget deficit, because working for the minimum wage becomes a more inviting alternative. By the way, in researching this answer, I was reminded of two more numbers that I perhaps willfully forgotten. First, an additional 6 million Americans are drawing unemployment insurance, and that doesn't include their dependents. Add 4.3 million on welfare to 14 million on SI or SSDI to the 6 million on unemployment insurance, and you've got at least 24.3 million Americans drawing benefits, most of them below what a full-time minimum wage worker would make. Finally, how many Americans, including their dependents, have so little coming in that they're eligible for food stamps? Nearly 47 million. One in seven of us. P. Henry, Lawndale, California. I've been, like, almost taking a drink. <laughs> that whole thing, hold on. Ooh, that's good. It should also be pointed out that by raising a minimum wage, more money flows into the federal and state treasuries in the form of increased tax revenues from the higher incomes. What's that worth in dollars? Paul Solomon. I don't know, but I wouldn't imagine much. How much are minimum wage workers likely to be paying in income taxes? On the other hand, it wouldn't help Social Security. Although only 2 million Americans earn exactly the minimum wage, as many as 18 million more, according to an estimate in the Atlantic article reference above, would be affected by what one might call a trickle-up economics. The Social Security payroll tax applies to everyone, regardless of income level. Let's try to do the numbers. A maximum of 20 million Americans, being paid a maximum of $1.75 more per hour, times a maximum of 2,080 hours, 40 hours by 52 weeks, equals an extra $73 billion or so. Social Security taxes, individual and employer, come to 12.5%. So, an extra $9 billion a year, absolute tops, and undoubtedly much less, considering the Social Security paid out some $768 billion in fiscal year 2012. The additional revenue isn't likely to make much of a dent. Bill Coombs, Indianapolis, 
Indiana, Indian ass, who begins his comment by quoting from yesterday's minimum wage post. Uh, Paul Solomon, since all employers have uh, to abide by the minimum wage, any given employer would lose versus the competition. So why wouldn't everybody simply raise their prices? Alan Kruger, well, I think in part, that's what happens. And now Bill's comment. Duh, so let's increase inflation. What in God's name has raising the minimum wage done other than raise prices in its history? Just what we need in this non-recovering economy. What fools you are. And you call yourselves economists? Resign and get a real job. Please, that is, if you can find one. Oh, Bill, witty man. Paul. Well, first of all, many, many thoughtful economists <laughs> Uh, economists support an increase in inflation, which is now down below 2% a year. The reason is to boost the economy and prevent deflation, where prices drop and an economy stagnates, leading to massive unemployment. Because unemployment is already a huge problem in this economy, see my answers above, the idea is precisely what you object to, Bill, to raise prices, in order to give businesses more incentives to produce and thus to hire. That is a widely accepted way to get a non-recovering economy to recover. I grant you, not everyone agrees with it, not every economist even, but if those like Alan Kruger who choose to worry more about unemployment than inflation these days are as you characterize us, Bill, then America has a bigger problem than just economic policy. How long can a ship of fools stay afloat? P. Solomon, P.S. I just read a tweet from at Mark Calabria recommending an interview with David Cart, Kruger's co-author in the minimum wage work. The interview covers the minimum wage and many other labor market topics. It's a highly recommended read. And that's the article. And actually it was post, post, blah, post on the 14th, sorry. Okay, so raising the minimum wage. Is it a good idea or a bad idea? How many people do you know that are actually still working? If they're not a, a kid first getting into the work uh, area are actually still on minimum wage. And what does that mean for those who are just above the minimum wage, but still under the uh, proposed $9 if you're making, you know, $8 or $7.75 or, you know, any one of those numbers before you get to nine? Does it mean that they automatically jump up? No, it just means new hirees. Or if you're making the minimum, then you're, you're pushed up to that $9 level. So a lot of people are expecting that this is going to crash our economy just like they did when they raised it to seven and a quarter. Um, it's not going to crash the economy. It's not going to make people unable to hire more workers. You got to realize that when there's more money coming into the system, there's less money and more incentive to work. There's less money being pushed into social programs for those who are out of work. Now, there is a genuine concern about whether or not there's going to be jobs, minimum wage even jobs, to fill the requirement. And, and that's something that only a growing economy can provide. But the only way to get a growing economy is to have a productive economy, like they spoke in this article. Um, and you really need to have incentives to do that. Certainly for people to work harder, um, certainly for people to spend their money, they need to feel like they have more in their pocket. And 
having a higher minimum wage is a really good way to do that over the long term is it going to mean anything when inflation happens probably not but if inflation happens that means our economy is improving and so it may be a constant catch-up game but that's life my friend that is how our economy is organized you may not like it it may not be the best way but it is the way that we have so we have to keep that in mind i always love it when people are talking about debt or people are, are talking about you know if we could all just catch up then we wouldn't have a productive society if everyone was at the same tier it's basic stuff here people we have to and this kind of plays into what we were talking about in the devil's advocate realize where you are on the economic scale yes people can push higher because of their and this <laughs> is kind of talking about class class structures and stuff but if we look at our human cultures realistically we fall into these structures and we have and that's why they exist um and and there's actually people that celebrate it so own it you know whatever you are and if you want to uh increase your stature or incre increase your um uh economic um uh status you can do so just be realistic with yourself whether you are capable of sustaining it or even achieving it in the long run and all of that together will create a better economy when people stop borrowing more than they're capable of of paying back and they take a realistic look at themselves and say i'm okay with where i am and i want to stay here because it, it it makes me happy for example i do not make a ton of money i make enough that i can do what i want to do when i want to do it i have the luxury of time with my family if i want to take a week off and go somewhere i can do it and it does not break my bank and that is where i'm happy being now i am not in control of my own company i am working for the man's as it were but i'm happy where i am because it means that i have a lifestyle that i want look for that in whatever form it takes and if you do then <laughs> This is starting to sound like a weird, crappy kumbaya thing that I'm not really trying to push for. But it's just that idea of if you're honest with yourself, then it pays off in spades to society. I guess maybe that's where I'm going with this. All right, and that's going to do it for the Infernal Informant. I'm going to take a short break. On the other side, I'm going to give you We Are Glass interview with UV Ray. Enjoy. What are we really talking about here? The Metro. What's the essence? Indulge yourself in that decadent decade of excess. The 1980s. All right. Listen to Radio Free Satan's very own program of music from the decade. That's gonna be radical. With your host, Jay Nothing. What's he like, our boss? Or what? No, no, he's the supervisor. He's not here at night. The Metro on Radio Free Satan. Nah, get out of town. Just you and me and the stiffs alone here. An hour of new wave, post-punk, and other retro music from the 1980s. Yeah, okay. We can make stuff. We can read. Coffee. This is great. I like it. Listen to the Metro only on RadioFreeSatan.com. Good. It's set. See you tomorrow night. got something special on the menu here at Metal Breakfast Radio, whether it be death metal, punk, hardcore, industrial, papadoms, kebabs, lambulti, pashwari naan, 
And would you like an onion bhaji for a starter? Oh, uh, I seem to have strayed from my original brief somewhat, so in a nutshell, Metal Breakfast Radio is tasty, hot, and goes well with a few pints. Stream it or order a takeaway from RadioFreeSatan.com. Metal Breakfast Radio, where we open our arms wide to all the cultures of the world. I defecate on his beard. Ah, piss Piss off. off. What's this show called? What do you mean, what is it called? You know, what's the name of the show? What, like the title? What's the title of the show? Is that what you're asking me? Yeah, what's the big deal? What's the title of the show? Look, it should be good enough for you and for any of you other generation Y's or X's or W's or Z's or or whatever fancy letter you're sitting on today to, to realize that it's not about what the title is. It's not about... When I was your kid, there's only one thing that we had growing up. When we wanted to watch a show, we just turned on the telly on Saturday mornings, and you know what we got? Do you know? Do you have any idea what we got? No, I have no idea. Why are you freaking out? Every single Saturday, and we didn't know what shows were, what what titles were, or or what. We had no choices on what to watch. We were stuck with the creature feature, and so are you. One day. We will be part man and part machine. We will turn our emotions on and off as we please. One day, we will love, but no longer bleed. That's the intro. Uh, Not even really the intro, just the first writings that you see when you open up UV Ray's We Are Glass. And I'm pleased to announce that I have UV Ray on the line with me, and we're going to be talking about his collection, We Are Glass. UV Ray, how are you today? I'm absolutely fantastic. <laughs> Pleased to be finished with the process of writing it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's uh, it's done and dusted. It's uh, uh, it's it's taken a lot out of me emotionally, so I'm pleased it's done. And um, you know, Steve at Murder Slim was was fantastic in in helping me sort of knock it into shape and get it together. Um, but yeah, it was it was an emotionally draining experience writing it. Yeah. So if we can sort of take this one step at a time here, We Are Glass as the title. Um, why Why that title? I mean, it is referenced in the story uh, Solidarity of the Damned. Uh, is that why you put it together, or is there a, a broader meaning? I, yeah, I took it from the title of a Gary Newman song, um, but it's not necessarily reflecting the song itself. I saw an interview with Gary Newman, he was talking about his Asperger's syndrome, um, and he, he, his disconnection with the human race, and uh, when Gary Newman sort of exploded onto the pop scene in sort of 78, 79, he had this very cold sort of standoffish, pale-faced image, and um, I saw this interview and he was talking about his disassociation and his, his feelings of disconnection and alienation, um, uh, which was all part of this Asperger's syndrome, his inability to sort of connect with other human beings, and... Um, he was talking about it with his own father, and his father said, well, if you don't find a way to, to sort of make it work for you, you know, you're in the wrong, you're in the wrong business. And uh, so he, he incorporated it into that sort of very cold, monochrome image that he, that he presented. And I think that's kind of, I sort of um, related anyway to those kind of feelings of alienation with the human race. And uh, I think many of the characters in the book itself sort of reflects I think all the stories, in fact, I can't think of one that doesn't sort of reflect those 
sort of feelings of loneliness that most of the characters seem to suffer. Do you think that's a, a larger just message uh, with humanity? I mean, not just in your novel or your collection of short stories here, but in us, in people. It's just that, that sort of loneliness, even though we are mass populating this planet. Well, I think, I mean, look, we're all ultimately alone. I mean, we all die alone. We've all got, uh, I mean, our minds, no one can really understand us. You can spend your life with your wife or your partner or whoever, and but there's parts of you that they can never really experience. You can both enjoy, uh, you can both enjoy a sunset, but no one can really fully understand what your, your internal interpretations of it. I don't think, um, you know. So I think we're all ultimately alone. It's just that some people are better at better at dealing with it, you know. Um, I think some people are naturally happier, um, and for those reasons, it you know it oils the wheels of social interaction better for everyone to be like that. But not everyone can, and for some people, life is more difficult. Mm -hmm. Well, let me let me touch on. Uh, I'm going to read a, a small little section here, and this is actually uh, from the story "Solidarity of the Damned," and this is the only reference to "We Are Glass." And I, I wanted to uh, put this at the very beginning of this interview because I think it it speaks to what this collection is, um, and it's damn good writing. So, <laughs> if you'll bear with me here for just a second. Okay. Frederick's thoughts were of darkly foreboding violins, marching, percussions, drumming, 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 a pounding, relentless coming from the shadow of death across the face of the earth until the irrevocable holocaust, leaving only ripples of tranquility until finally there is nothing but the delicate plucking of harps, as if we had never existed at all. In the final analysis, we don't even possess the strength of strings. We are glass. We are all so easily broken." I think that is uh, just an amazing, amazing little section. And the story, Solidarity of the Damned, uh, it is really, really a great... Um, it, it, it speaks to the human condition, uh, I think, perfectly. Um, do you want to maybe uh, give an overview, just like a brief overview of what that, uh, what that story is about? Um, yeah, I mean, ultimately, again, in reference in the title, we are glass. It's 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 again the fragility of us all. We're all ultimately fragile, and you know, I've over the years, I've you know, the the, the book is very autobiographical. Also, I mean, yeah. you, you know, there's only I can only think of a couple of stories that I would call fiction uh, in the book. The rest of them rely heavily on my own experiences, and you know, it doesn't matter how tough you think you are, or you know, I've definitely met some tough men in my time and you know they can all be broken so easily so again I was referencing with the title the fact that we are like glass and it doesn't matter if you don't think you can be things can happen in life that completely shatter you you know yeah well when you were putting this collection first how how long did it take you to get this collection together to collect it all and write it and, and re-edit it and everything uh, well, I think it was a couple of years um I think it was about that, but I didn't intend to sort of set out writing it. Um, I was just writing short stories, and uh, when I was talking to Steve at Murder Slim about another book, he kind of said, well, you know, you've got such, such power in some of these stories. These deserve to be, these deserve to be out there as a collection, and um, I worked with him in knocking it into shape, in, into sort of, um, in all, there was about 30 stories, which we narrowed down to the 17, which wow. um, 
all fit as one collection because they all complemented each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, with just a few, with just a few links, really, it could it could be sort of um, chiselled into a novel, which we didn't think in the end was the best thing to do. But we are working on future projects. So, um, but I think I think it was a couple of years in all to to actually write the stories uh, and sort of just knock it knock it into shape a little bit and. Um, just gel them all together into what fits as a collection. Yeah. So, a couple of years, I'd say, but I'm not entirely sure. Well, with so many um, stories cut out, do you have another collection in the works, uh, or, or at least oh, on the horizon? Uh, yeah, that would be easy to do from what I've already got. Where the, uh, I mean, Steve at Murder Slim, he's uh, sort of the head honcho there. I mean, he's it's, a, it's obviously a small independent press, um, but he sort of has the final say and. Uh, I've got plenty of stuff that he's still interested in, but he's he's quite strict on sort of the books he releases. He's I mean he's published some big names like Dan Fante, um, Seymour Shubin, uh, Tommy Trantino, you know big names on the underground scene. Mm-hmm. And he's quite intent on um, on making sure the books are right for the press themselves. So we would have to cut a few more stories out. So I'm not sure how many out of say 30 stories we can we can get together that work as a collection because yeah. some of the stories, for instance, I can see now his point that if, if they were put in the middle of this collection, they'd stand out like a sore thumb. Uh, they wouldn't fit. Uh, so it was a case of just fitting it together and it'll be the case of doing that again. Uh, and although I need a bit of time to re- recharge my batteries, um, yeah. there's no chance of me ever stopping writing. I keep saying I'm going to. I've been saying it for 20 years, <laughs> but I never do. So there will always be stuff that I'm working on and uh, stuff that's due out, really. Fantastic. Well, I mean, you did say, you know, throughout that uh, discussion just a second ago that everything in here was was put together with intent and with reason so that it flows as one solid collection. I mean, going through it story by story for me, it and, and you did say that, you know, this was very much informed by your own life experience, but this was one solid communication it seemed in my mind uh much like some you know to take it more of a a, um philosophical or or religious turn for for a brief second here it was like uh you explaining your thoughts of the world and just describing the world around you through these uh sort of chaotic at times and very sexual at times and just disassociated at times uh you know moments in your life um, so when you were writing this, uh, each of these stories on these characters, and maybe this just speaks to uh, a question of, of your writing in general, do you try to write through a character, meaning you create this character and then, uh, you know, do this story around it, or do you just substitute the character for yourself in these? Uh, yeah, I mean, as, as I said, it is highly autobiographical, um, I, I don't set out with any intention, so I suppose it's, I, I get, perhaps when I start writing a story, it's kind of like I have to get myself out of the way to, to sort of give free rein to the subconscious, if you like. Um, <laughs> it's probably the easiest way of describing it, but I don't set out with any intent. I just start writing and I stop when it seems finished mm-hmm. um, or it feels finished. It just sort of clicks. Um, so... And it's certainly not a happy collection, and um, a lot of people obviously read us the feedback so far. It's only been out, um, I think, three weeks now officially, so 
the feedback so far from quite a few people that have emailed me has been that it's quite quite a depressing collection. <laughs> um, but, um, but it's um, someone the other day said the overriding mantra appears to be that that ultimately nothing matters. And I, I do see the world that way. I don't think it really matters what any of us do. We have this time on the planet, and it's in relatively a very, very short space of time. Um, ultimately, you know, so I, I suppose there is the, the, the vein running through the whole book is one of nihilism. Uh, nothing matters, ultimately, as I see it. But, see, and you say that, um, and th- but there's these little hints of, of appreciation of the moment. So it's easy to to um, think, well, nothing matters, so why should anything matter, and just sort of go on a depressing rant or binge, but I find in this book, uh, well, here, let, let me let me give one little brief read here again. This is from Temporary Things, and this speaks to um, exactly my point. Ian looked down and saw that one of the paving slabs had a large crack across it, through which a single bright yellow buttercup had grown, right in the middle of the city, this whole sprawling morass of grey concrete nothingness. Syphilitic in every alley, a tiny, fragile emblem of life had managed to thrive, to rebel against the onslaught and fight its way into existence. It had refused to be denied. It was the flower that had slain the dragon. Little moments like that, where it's appreciation of uh, sort of the absurdities of life. And that, that scene was actually... Um, you know, out of context, it sounds like this nice little thing, but it was actually, you know, right after a bombing, and it's uh, the story about this, you know, intense relationship of two people that uh, probably should never actually be together, but are just enjoying their time together. So, uh, it's sort of this chaos around them, and then they see this one flower. And so, this entire book is is uh, very complex, and it's not just, at least the way I'm reading it, it's not just about... Um, how nothing matters and just, you know, we're all disconnected, but it's enjoying small moments within that disconnected and um, uh, sometimes seemingly completely meaningless, uh, you know, life itself. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, I find it really flattering when people point those kind of things out because I think that's an important part of the book, but it's not just an onslaught of depression. Um, But I do see... I do see life that way. I mean, if you think about any of us, we have a lot of pain in life. We, you know, family members die. We, mm-hmm. we do have a lot of grief, but we do have that strength of humanity within us that, that carries on, and we do see elements of beauty all around us, you know. It's like uh, you often hear of people, they've lost a very, very close loved one, you know, a spouse or or a father or mother, and, you know, one day they see the sunset and suddenly they think, you know what, life is beautiful. And life can carry on. And although as individuals, as our short space of time, 70, 80 years on the earth, you know, a little bit longer if we're lucky, mm-hmm. um, although we're short, you know, life carries on around us. And, uh, you know, I think that is the overriding element of the book. Um, I think it's it's sort of 75, 80% hardship, but it's those little moments that I think makes the book what it is. Uh, and that's what I hope people take from it and pe- people do enjoy from it. Um, but certainly I didn't set out with, with, with any intention, but I'm, I'm always very flattered, very pleased that people share that element. It makes me feel better when um, the feedback, people come back and say, I love that moment when the buttercup, you know, we spotted the buttercup <laughs> um, pushing through the, the crack in the pavement. And, you know, maybe 
maybe people who read the book will, you know, identify with that. But I think we all do, you know, without doubt, undeniably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and there was another story in here that really just stunned me. It was the um, uh, New Dawn Dies. And, <laughs> I mean, we all have, there's this really great little segment here. We all have had a moment like this um, where we're we're looking in the mirror and, you know, we have this sort of residual self-image in our head. And then, you know, when we're actually confronted with our own what should be familiar reflection, we don't even recognize the eyes staring right back at us. Um, and yeah. I, I didn't read the passage, passage in this, but the entire story is written as if you, the author, are telling us about our own life. And so it's almost as if you, the author, are the mirror and us, the reader, are looking into it and we're just seeing our own reflection through this story. Even though it's unfamiliar, it just, it sort of reinforces that idea that this story brings forth. Have you had this uh, experience in your life of, of, of looking at yourself and not realizing who the fuck you are? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I kind of still wonder. I mean, I, you know, I don't know if other people do this, but, I, you know, I, I sometimes wonder if, you know, I, you know, am I schizophrenic or what? I mean, <laughs> for instance, you mentioned that story, and I can remember the title, but I don't remember writing it. Um, I, I know New Dawn Dies, but I can't, if you ask me, could you, cite a passage from that, I could not cite one sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like I said, I mean, the, 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 the writing process really is perhaps a few minutes when I start writing a story of getting the crap out of the way, um, you know, and then you erase that and then you just start writing from a stream of consciousness point of view. So, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I think I'm more, so, I mean, I'm 40, 45 years old now, so I'm perhaps in a more uh, secure position than I've ever been, but all my life I've kind of wondered who I am. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's a relevant question for all of us because we all wear a mask for society, don't we? Yeah. Um, whether we like to admit it or not. Um, but I often, I think more importantly, I often watch other people and I think, you know, they're wearing a mask, I don't know them. I don't know. You know, none of us really know 90% of the people around us. You know your closest family, but all the people you deal with generally day in, day out, you don't really know them. Mm -hmm. They're just presenting that face to the world. So fuck knows who they are, (laughs) you know. And, um, you know, that's why, um, I don't know if you know the, you know, the killer Peter Sutcliffe from the 70s here, the the Yorkshire Ripper, you know. You know, he butchered 14 women and was a lorry driver and he was a... He was just a normal guy, and no one sort of cottoned on to the fact that he got this this dark side to them that was hammering women's heads in, you know, cracking their skulls with a hammer, uh, or that he had these, you know, he he had these sexual drives that made him do it. And I think, I just think there's those kind of people all around us, and we don't even mm-hmm. know. Yeah. What I what I like about it most, though, is that there's these masks that we put on for other people. But we even put them on for ourselves. And the discovery of who we really are is a lifelong process. I mean, that seems obvious when you say it out loud, but, you know, we have this sort of sense of self that we're continually reevaluating. And it's, it's always nice when you have those moments where you even surprise yourself about what you like or you didn't even know about it. Um, I gotta tell you, in this collection, the, 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 the story, Something Wonderful, was 
fantastic. It may just speak to the pervert in me, but I absolutely loved that story a lot. Uh, right, really great. Um, I, I, again, I can't remember which one that is. Um, but, you know, the important thing there is that you said um, that, you know, we, we, we kind of wearing it for ourselves as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wonder, do, do most people reevaluate? I mean, I think it depends on on your own kind of personality and psyche. You might reevaluate yourself. I might reevaluate myself, but do the majority of people. And I don't know. They, they must do, I guess. But, you know, I don't know. Um, but the important thing, what you just said, though, is that we're wearing the mask for ourselves. And the way I, you know, was just speaking about sort of serial killers and such like, I think, I think they convince themselves. And I, I, I think that exactly that, the mask is for themselves. And it's a self-sufficient delusion. I think most people have to see themselves in a certain way. That, again, coming back to that image in the mirror. Mm-hmm. And I think people see what they want to see in themselves. Um, it's pretty much like, you know, if you have a minor argument with someone in your daily job or whatever, and you know they've done something, but they will they will justify it to themselves with these absolute crock of shit excuses. And it's not just to escape escape justice or, or anything. It, it, it is also to justify it to themselves to say, ultimately, I'm a good person. I did the right thing, or I did what I did what couldn't be avoided. And that's kind of my observation in a lot of people as well. You know. Hell yeah. Yeah. In the last story in this, and so we turn to dust. I mean, it may seem obvious, and this may actually be why a lot of people who've read it have said it's just depressing. Um, but was there a reason why you chose? I mean, other than the obvious, was there a reason why you had that one at the end, just dying uh, in the I, in the I, hospital I, I, bed? Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, that, yeah. <laughs> but again, I mean, I don't think that character. I mean, he's told he's got cancer, and but he takes some humour from it, doesn't he? He looks at it and says, right, well, you know. The gas board aren't going to get their payment now, you know, and he still has that little joke at the end. Yeah. So ultimately, he feels that he's, you know, he's ended on a joke and he's, he's kind of, he's got one over on life, doesn't he, in a way. <laughs> he's escaped responsibility, he's escaped, you know, he's escaped the, the endless misery. He's, he doesn't sort of sit down and say, oh, well, that's it, I'm fucked. He just thinks to himself, oh, well, fuck them. <laughs> you know, so... You know, and, you know, I think his final words, weren't they, were, you know, bury me upside down so the world can kiss my brown eye. I mean, you know, and that's, you know, when if I'm finally told I've got some terminal illness, I think that's that's pretty much, I hope I can be that way, you know. If there's absolutely nothing you can do, you are terminal, that is it. Mm -hmm. There's no point, you know, you can enjoy your last few, few months or whatever they give you, but... I would like to think I can turn around and say, well, fuck you, there's my book. That's what I've left you. You know, that's it. You're getting nothing more from me. Yeah. Well, I, I hope it's not uh, for, for quite some time yet. I, I really enjoyed this well, collection. Well, not, but, you know, it's going to happen at some <laughs> yeah. point to all of us, isn't it? So, yeah, absolutely. You know, I hope there's a bit more in me. Um, and, you know, uh, I'm working on a few more things, so I'd like to get at least one more out, but I've... I have always, again, I mean, maybe it's just because I am generally, a, you know, a, a sort of dour person, and, you know, I've always had this feeling I'm probably not going to last long. Um, I certainly, I mean, people are surprised that I hit 30, um, I'm now 45, and I'm sort of thinking to myself, well, I might get lucky and make 50. <laughs> 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 you know, um, 
but then again, people who know me are going, no, Mark, you're just one of those people that's going to be around until you're sort of 90 years old, you know. Yeah. So, um, we'll see, won't we? <laughs> Continue but certainly writing. for as long as I'm here, mm-hmm. I will be, you know, I'll be writing. There's nothing else I can do. That's just something I started when I was eight years old and something that I've always done. Yeah. Um, I think it came from, you know, being one of those, I came from a very, very strict religious household and they were very much of the opinion, you know, the old saying children should be seen and not heard. Yep. Um, because I was never listened to, I, that's why I started writing. Wow. Yeah, and now, now you're mass listened to. <laughs> um, well, I'm, you know, on the underground literary scene, it's not, I'm not widely known, but I think um, what's important is that the people who are attracted to the work are the right people to be reading it. Yeah, that's I'm very not bothered true. about if someone's not interested in it. I'm not bothered about them. Uh, like anything, I mean, you know, like Anton Bavay, he was always very much of the opinion that the right people are attracted to his Church of Satan. And he wasn't bothered about the other people. He was kind of, there was an element of magic in who would discover the Church of Satan in whatever way you find it. And then you would look into it further if you were right for it. Yeah. So I have the same, the same approach to the writing. Nice. Well, you did mention that you know there were other works in you, and you're going to be continuing to write. Is there any anything you want to you know solidify and, and announce? Okay. I mean, a lot of people already know I've already completed um, uh, a novella, um, which was due for publication with another press um, about two or three years ago. Now it's well overdue. That press is having some legal problems, mm-hmm. um, so it's hugely delayed. What's going to happen with it, I don't know, but there is one of the book already completed, so um, which is not the right thing at all for Murder Slim Press, who put out Wheel Glass. It's just completely the wrong kind of work for them. Yeah. Uh, so what's going to happen with it, I don't know. I have spoken to Steve, and Steve's kind of like, well, if there's a re- rewriting, you, you know, we can look at it again. Uh, but I don't know what to do with that yet. So there's one completed, and then I've got at least another another 20 stories that, that could be put together as, as in book form, but uh, there's no solid plans yet. I'd really need to take take a break uh, with no sort of deadlines to it or anything like that. I need to recharge my batteries. Uh, we are glass took so much out of me, it's left me knackered, to be honest. Yeah. That's, that's a British saying for you. It means <laughs> spent. Right. Um, so it's left me completely out of energy, and I need to recharge my batteries before I can do anything else. All right, well, we will anxiously await future writings, and uh, we have quite a bit here to, to devour in the meantime. Um, you can pick up We Are Glass by UV Ray on Amazon.com. You can also check out his website, uvray.moonfruit.com, for more information about UV Ray and his past projects and current thoughts. Thank you so much for joining me, UV Ray. Thanks, Adam. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, and I hope we can do it again. Yeah, maybe soon. Maybe the next one comes out. Fantastic. Hail Satan. Cheers, buddy. Bye. That's it for another show. I hope you enjoyed it. I would love to hear from you. Visit the website 9centspodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let me know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. And look, I've been getting a couple um, really, really great comments uh, from you guys listening. I just wanted to take a second and say thank you very much. The correspondence means a lot to me. It lets me know that there is actually an active audience out there that appreciates what I'm doing. And 
you know, it's just nice hearing <laughs> the stories uh, that you have that at, at some level my show is connected with. Uh, so yeah, keep them coming, people. I love it. You can visit the SatanNet, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or MySpace page for 9 cents and get updated on weekly topics. Listen to the show at RadioFreeSatan.com or download the show Monday nights via my RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. We're also on Last.fm, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube, so look for us there. You can subscribe to 9 cents via iTunes by searching 9 cents, and don't forget to leave a rating and or comment. Oh yeah, and if you just search Satanic Podcast or Satanism Podcast in Google... I'm like the second, second result. And you could make the argument, oh, well, there's only a handful of, you know, supposed satanic podcasts out there anyway. But that's a big deal to me, because I wasn't always at number two. I'm not even sure I want to be number one, because, to be honest, number two spot in Google searches get clicked more often than number one. So that's a good thing, people. Let's let's keep it going. Recommend me to a friend. Let's, let's share the nine cents love if uh, you want to give me a rating. Or more importantly, a review. I would love to have a collection of reviews. Ultimately, what I would like to do is is run some, you know, anonymous testimonials for my podcast uh, on my website, which also helps with search engine visibility and authenticity to other potential viewers. So, you know, keep that in mind. I would really, really love to hear or read what you think about my show, the good and the bad. Truly, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate, um, constructive criticism. Sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Um, if you'd like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. And if you'd like to hear other fine satanic voices, music, or personalities, visit radiofreesatan.com, the source for online satanic media. Once again, thank you for joining me. And as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell. And until next week, hail Satan!